And the thing I was most interested in architecture was affordable housing and how to make affordable housing dignified and personalized. And so when I started looking into tiny houses, I really felt like it would address a lot. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 71 with Erin Miley O'Keefe. I just finished teaching a two-week-long tiny house design-build course with Erin and was blown away by her design skills, unique insights, and the amazing paper boat tiny house that she designed and built for her husband, Kevin, and herself. The way her house uses space and allows occupants to flow from the public space of the living room all the way to the private space of the bedroom is incredibly unique and really impressive. I knew I wanted to have Erin on the show to talk about tiny house design, her work in the local community, and the event she organized, Tiny House Fest Vermont, which is currently in its fourth year. I hope you stick around. I want to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Jamaica Cottage Shop, pioneers of the PCK or pre-cut kit. You can literally build one of hundreds of buildings from sheds to tiny houses and even larger cabins yourself. All of the precision cut pieces for the building come labeled and color coded with clear, easy to follow instructions shipped to you for free almost anywhere in North America. The kits are 100% made in the USA from rough sawn hemlock and eastern white pine. I personally used a Jamaica Cottage Shop pre-cut kit when I needed to build a 5 foot by 8 foot storage shed for my tiny house, and the cost was literally less than if I had gone to the lumberyard to buy the raw materials myself. Plus, having all the pieces pre-cut and labeled saved a ton of build time. Right now, Jamaica Cottage Shop is offering listeners of our show $100 off a purchase of $1,000 or more. Just head over to jamaicacottageshop.com slash THLP and use or mention the coupon code THLP when you order. That's jamaicacottageshop.com slash THLP, coupon code THLP, for $100 off a purchase of $1,000 or more. Limit one use per customer, expires November 30th, 2019. Cannot be combined with any other promotion and does not apply to past or current orders. Thank you so much to Jamaica Cottage Shop for sponsoring our show. All right, I am here with Erin Miley O'Keefe. As an educator and community artist and activator, Erin has developed kinesthetic multi-generational curriculums, facilitating group inclusion, connection, co-authorship, and empathy. For over two decades, she has led in-school arts residency curriculums that activate anatomy and life science studies for elementary students, ending in a community performance and student-led workshops. Erin's background in dance, theater, and architecture has made the crafting of temporal spaces and community play at the core of much of her work. With the completion of a master certificate in creative placemaking at Ohio State University, Erin founded the Human Connection Project that focuses on activating communities through municipal-wide arts projects, creative placemaking, and experiential engagement. Partners include local schools, businesses, organizations, municipalities, and pedestrians. In 2016, Erin co-founded Tiny House Fest Vermont, 
hosting meaningful conversations about building housing and place. The process of designing and building her first home, the paper boat house, has reignited the dream she had at age seven of designing architectural spaces. Erin Miley O'Keefe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good and morning. We should say that we are here together uh, at the Yestermorrow Design Build School in Waitsfield, Vermont. Yes, we've had the incredible pleasure of working and teaching together in the last 12 days. It has been an amazing experience. I've been really inspired by what an amazing eye you have for design. As we've been walking around, like looking at the students' designs, I like run out of things to say, and then you go over and have like so many more things to say. Ditto. In the same way, I stop and then you pick up there, and I've really been appreciative of all the research you've done over the last how many years, decade. So we should probably just quickly kind of explain like what what is Yes Tomorrow and what is this crazy thing that we've been doing? Right. So Yes Tomorrow is a design build school that started 40 years ago. Next year, it's going to celebrate its 40th year. It started in um, John Connell's, the above John Connell's garage. And his whole mission was to put design skills and build skills into the hands of the dwellers that will occupy them. So cool. And the campus is kind of littered with Amazing projects made from straw bale and Tadillac walls and timber framing. And they really were early on, you know, jumping in, starting to teach tiny house classes years yeah, ago. They actually arguably had the first tiny house festival here. I think it was in 2011. So they kind of started the bigger conversation about how to go small. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. So. The class that we're teaching is a, a two-week intensive where students get to both learn some design chops and also work on an actual construction project. Yes. They, so that's where they get to really kind of occupy and build this kind of spaces that they're thinking about designing. So that kind of kinesthetic and hands-on experiential learning um, is really powerful here. Absolutely. I've been... It's just been amazing to watch how much they have progressed in these last two weeks. Some, some of them seemingly had never used a hammer before. Um, and by the end, you know, everybody was using a circular saw. Everyone had a chance with a nail gun. It was, it was pretty amazing. And I don't think I spoke to one person that wanted to stop building. That was a very hard experience for them to stop building. I know we had, we had to pull them back into the classroom today. I felt a little bad too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, I wanted to start by uh, asking you to describe your house, the paper boat. Um, what, what is the shape of it? Was there a particular design inspiration for it? Or did the shape um, follow the function that you were trying to get from it? So um, I should also say that I came to Yestermorrow and took a tiny house design course, which was about five days. And that was, that was a few years ago, probably almost three years ago. And in that time, in that five-day period, I got to really just focus on design. And I've always loved modern kind of Scandinavian design. And I knew when I designed my home, I wanted to have those clean and clear lines, big windows, inside gets 
pulled out, outside gets pulled in. So I think over the years, I've just cataloged a lot of very utilitarian and simple modern Scandinavian um, aesthetics and features. The actual, like the primary part of my design that was driven by the vertical circulation, so the stairs. And stairs, for any of you out there that have tried to design stairs in a small space or any space at all, they take about like like 500% more space than you think. Like you'll like give a lot, like this small little square in the corner of your plan and you're like, wait, there's vertical uh, vertical rise and, and, and horizontal run that just can't fit there. So I ended up tipping out because in a, in a tiny house design, it's on a trailer. It's not a house. Like it's not a conventional house. The proportions are different. So I just gave myself the freedom to create a shape that really rose out of the footprint and out of the function of the internal space. And so I canted the back wall um, at about, a, it's somewhere around a 65 degree angle. Um, and I ran my, my stairs up the wall. What that also did was that I wanted to make sure that I divided the living kitchen space from the private sleeping and changing space. I didn't want an open loft. So I knew I wanted to circulate as far, vertical circulate as far away from the entrance of the house. So that back wall got tipped outward. Those stairs run up and are supported by that back wall. And then once I tipped that back wall, I tipped the front wall. And then all of a sudden, it started to look like origami, or it, it quickly got its name, the paper boat. Yeah, it does have a little bit of a boat. It looks like the hull of a boat, but it doesn't look boat-like. Um, it's, it's actually, I find it aesthetically quite pleasing. Thank you. And um, as always, with Aaron's permission, I will post uh, lots of beautiful photos of the paper boat on the show notes page for this episode, which I'll, I'll say at the end. Great. Um, in, in addition, um, I, once you're up in that space, I popped up like kind of a dormer, a window so that the loft space had quite a bit of light without having to use a skylight. So that also gives this interesting fold. So I started to work with, in the, on the exterior side, working with this idea that the exterior were these paper cuts or angles that were folded. So the outside has this paper quality and then there's layers of, there's also a panel that changes materials. So it's, it's a simple exterior with, with a little bit of corrugated metal and a lot of vertical shiplap. Um, but it does have this quality of folding. Yeah, and what's amazing about it that you wouldn't necessarily think right off the bat is how much longer the house is on the quote-unquote second story mm-hmm. than it is on the first floor. Right, so the front and the, the front, I'm going to call it the front where you enter, and this is in the, the short wall that is the width of the trailer. And then the back, which is away from the tongue of the trailer, which is the tall wall where the vertical circulation is. The tall wall is at a greater angle than the front. I tipped the front so that, you know, it would be balanced visually and interesting. But what also um, is interesting about it is that as you walk into the space, 
that tipped wall next to you on your right side really gives a feeling of opening. So this idea that you're coming through a, a doorway, a smaller doorway, feeling that sense of compression. And then as you walk in, the, the space kind of unfolds in front of you. So on the right side, you have this wall canted out. And then I've got a long shed roof, which you see on the interior of the living space, which rises up towards the, the loft, which you just see a wall there because it's closed in. Yeah. And so the layout and just the design work that went into the kind of, I want to call it the central core, like the utilities core of this house is really amazing. And it will be hard to to really describe it, mm-hmm. but can you kind of tell us what the overall length of the trailer is and what you were able to fit into this house in terms of utilities? Okay. So um, I've also designed a number of other spaces, and um, the approach I have is that there are certain spaces in your house that are just human function spaces where you're doing one thing. And if you're doing one thing, then you really don't need a lot of space. So how do you really compress all of those kinds of spaces and overlap some of the circulation? So where your feet are going to go. So really tracking where your feet are going and how can your feet cross those same spots or use those same open spots on the floor to do a multiple, multiple functions. So if you're standing in a, say, a two foot by two foot or three foot by three foot square, what are there three sides, two or three sides where you're doing different things? What, brushing your teeth, going in your cabinets, uh, and washing your laundry? I have one little two foot by two foot space where my feet are there. Um, so when I approached this, I really wanted to divide the space. I wanted to give great priority to the living and dining area, kitchen area really is what I should say, because there's a really big kitchen. And then once you hit midway through, it's a 30-foot trailer. So the front part um, has about 17 feet in the front and then about 13 in the back. And then one thing you had alluded to is how much space I got by canting those walls. The back cant um, is four feet. At the very peak, it's four feet further than the 30-foot trailer. So it creates this incredible volume. So if you were to stand on the edge of the back trailer and you look up, there's another four feet in a triangle at the top of that. Mm -hmm. So so the space divided like that with a, a sheer wall in the center once you get past that middle point at 17 feet, you have, I have two pantries that pull out that have the, it has the most densely um, focused storage. And those are accessed from both sides. From the kitchen side, you see the kitchen stuff. From the hallway or the back area under the loft, you see either medicine cabinet or um, my cleaning supplies. And then... The bathroom and the shower are separated. The design is, has a central axis, so I have a long view in my house intentionally, so you can bring light in from, in my case, the north and the south. And the, so there's a tiny sink and a bath uh, toilet that are in a small room with a sliding door. The shower is off to the right of the hallway, and it is its own room with strategically placed 
um, frosted glass in the middle of the body. And then back behind that, there is a changing room with hanging and bureaus. And I live there with my husband, Kevin. So it's very much a his, hers kind of setup. Yeah, it's it's so well thought out. I, I heard you joke in the class that you realized that it was one big cabinet. Yeah. A, a big cabinet job. And the cabinetry is gorgeous. And as soon as you look at the pictures, you'll say, yeah, that's a that is an intricate cabinet job. Yeah, I definitely have to send out ups to to Dwight Holmes, who's an incredible cabinet maker in Brattleboro. And uh, I saw a stair case that he made with the, this railing. And I was like, oh, this is this is definitely the person I'm going to work with. This is the guy. This is the guy. Yeah, the the. As soon as I saw the design, I was like, that's brilliant. I loved hearing you talk about how showers are rooms, so they don't need their own room. Right. Right. Although that little area in front of the shower, if it's inside a room, is just a place you step out to dry yourself, and you can dry yourself inside, or you can dry yourself in the hall, or you can... Right. Right. And you even even designed a sliding panel that would prevent you from say, flashing your guests in the living room exactly. as you step out of the shower. <laughs> they can see my feet. That's yes. it. <laughs> because of the, of the wheel well, but that's it. Yes. And then so that little sliding door that Ethan's talking about just comes out, covers the shower area. And behind that are our dressers that are built in and are hanging so we can change back there. So there's very much a progression from private to public if you start in the bed. So in the design process, there are so many ways to approach it, right? So we talked about de- approaching it from the exterior. We talked about approaching it from vertical circulation, from the central axis, where I wanted light, how I wanted to densify all of human function places. And, but there's also very much this idea that, um, that I think about is I think about architecture as choreography. So I think about my choreography as a human moving through space, like a score. And so, and I also have to think, consider another human, my husband, Kevin. So what do we do from the moment we wake up? So starting in the bed, really charting our activity and how each space can open to the activity that we would do next. So the way it's designed, you get out of bed, you're out of bed, there's a little platform where we can meditate and stretch. We come down the stairs and there's the place where we have our clothes and our shower and then the bathroom. And then suddenly we pass through the center wall of this and we're in kitchen and we're in the public. It's, it's great the way that it flows from private to public or public, public to private, depending on which direction you're coming from. Yes. How have you enjoyed living in it? Um, I have to say, we are so, we are surprised every day at how much we love living there. I'm so, I'm delighted. And I'm one of those people who are like, well, have plan A, B, and C. So I designed it, but, and I think it was going to be good. And we spent, I spent a lot of time designing it and spent a lot of time building it alongside some really skilled and wonderful um, tradespeople. And put in the things we really wanted. But all that said, I was like, if we don't love it, we will do something different. And every single day we wake up and we just pinch ourselves. We feel so lucky to be in that space. It feels spacious. It feels like just what we need. Um, 
and it feels like it's opened our lives in a lot of ways. That's awesome. What, maybe you could share what, you know, what made you decide to build a house on wheels in the first place? Yeah. So I originally had designed a house to replace the house. We bought a house in Brattleboro. It was really a camp. It was a hunting cabin. And so when it was originally built, it wasn't intended for three or four seasons. And then through a couple other ownerships before us, they gradually kind of upped the utilities and added on. So um, the oldest part of the house had so many challenges. I had replaced the roof and done a few things and decided, you know, it really, after looking at it, looking at it with a lot of people, a lot of different builders and architects, it looked like we should probably just start from scratch. So I built a house that, I mean, I designed a house for that spot and it was 900 square feet and there was no way we could afford it. So we regrouped and that was a, that was a few year process and thought, well, if we kind of slowly make improvements to the old house and rent it in a market in Brattleboro that really needs rentals. And then I start to build something in the back corner of the property that would make more sense. And then I could take my time doing that. So then I started looking at tiny houses because that was the budget we had. And I also really loved their flexibility. I loved the idea that like for some reason, if we were called to go and move close to family members, we could move it. Or if um, we decided our needs changed and so this house suited someone else, they could, sell, they could buy it and, and move it. So I got really in, intrigued by that. And I did go to architecture way back when um, and did not complete that. I went for two years. And the thing I was most interested in architecture was affordable housing and how to make affordable housing dignified and personalized. And so when I started looking into tiny houses, I really felt like it could address a lot of our housing needs here in Vermont, regionally, nationally, and even internationally. So I got kind of really into it. And I, I, I started a conversation in my living room with a few people that were also interested locally and, um, and decided that I was going to build one. And so at that moment, I was designing my house, planning the build, and uh, a dear friend of mine, Betsy, who was also part of those conversations, said, hey, we should start a festival. That's awesome. So, and that's also a great segue into talking about the Vermont Tiny Fest. Yes. So Betsy asked me one time I said no, because I, I said, you know, I'm building my first house. And then she asked me again. I said, really, I don't have time. I'm really, I've never built a house before. So this is, this is got to take all my attention. And the third time she asked me, I said, okay, fine, let's do it. How hard could it be? I took time off of teaching. We'll do a festival at the same time. So I should also disclose that I've run a lot of festivals. So she asked the right person. Ah, yeah. So it's Tiny House Fest Vermont. And um, we are this year in 2019 are having our fourth annual festival. It started in Brattleboro. It was also um, in the streets of Brattleboro, took over um, a street that has been somewhat underutilized but has incredible bones for a festival. It's right down on the Whetstone across from our co-op. It's called Flat Street. It is flat, which is also kind of great. And had a, has a 
a number of parking lots and a number of vacant lots that we could put tents up in. And so um, since the first year to now, we've grown quite a bit. We, we thought we'd have 400 people the first year, and we think we had 4,000. Wow. Yeah. There's, there's, a little, there's a little buzz around tiny houses. I don't know if you've noticed. I know. They just draw <laughs> people in. We are all flies, and tiny houses are a fluorescent light. <laughs> totally. I call it the shiny object in the center. Yeah. Right? Oh, look. Or the cute kitten. Absolutely. Yeah. So the festival is moving for the first time this year? First time this year. It's been the last three years. It's been Brattleboro. This year, it's in... Wait for it. Drum roll. The Mad River Valley. So um, it started off by three friends, Betsy, Lisa, me, doing this festival and um, quickly getting in over our heads because of the fervor around tiny houses. And I I want to say, too, like our intention is really to have meaningful conversations. Like you said in my bio, the meaningful conversations around housing to me Tiny houses are this incredible like golden wedge into the housing market. And it's opening up conversations around insurance and finance and zoning. So that's I think that is one of the biggest um the biggest benefits of of the tiny house movement is that that zoning is being challenged in a lot of communities where um disenfranchised people have there have been a lot. I mean, zoning has created disenfranchised people and, and dwellers. And, you know, there's some, it just feels like on the planet, we are the only species where we can actually be houseless. Um, so how do we really consider how, how, can we, how can everyone dwell in the way that suits them the best? And how do we help that happen? So there's a lot of angles at the festival. We do look at technologies that are building science that's coming up so that we have healthier spaces. Oftentimes, those healthier spaces and techniques cost more money. So we're having conversations there and hoping to, to really connect those building scientists with the end user that maybe can't afford those super expensive systems. So how, do they, how can they meet the needs? of more of a bigger audience and then sharing stories of people's personal um, housing journeys. How did they think about housing? What did, how did they build it? Where did they put it? How small was it? What do you really need? How can you phase in your building? All those things that I think being able to have a festival where everyone can come and listen and talk and uh, about those topics, it makes that journey to having a house more accessible. I have to say, I've been to a lot of tiny house festivals, and there's nothing else like this. Um, and I say that in, in a good way. This is much more inclusive and focused on education and, as you've said, the conversations. Many tiny house festivals, and I'm not knocking them, because they give you a chance to at least see a lot of tiny houses and yeah. interact with people who live in tiny houses. Um, but they're not facilitating a lot of conversations and bringing in a really unique set of voices, voices from outside the tiny house movement who might have something really valuable to give 
you know, people who are interested in affordable housing or sustainability or, you know, financing mm-hmm. all these, you know, I'm looking just at the presenter lineup from last year and wishing that I didn't miss it. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of cross-pollination that happens. And, and on that level too, we have uh, statewide decision makers that are there. We have our legislators there. We, so many decisions, of course, are made in our state houses, which is the way that we're structured. And then it's up to us as citizens to get to our representatives and make sure that our voices are heard and that they represent us. There are other ways of that happening, too. And so this festival is kind of an open forum and it has to be fun. So as an experiential educator, like having those tiny houses there, you get to go into a house, you get to experience that and then come out and have a conversation. That's a different conversation. It's not necessarily just from your head. You just experienced a small space. You might say, oh, I couldn't do this. Or, oh, I could totally live this way. Whatever it is. Or I want a little bit of this house and a little bit of that house. And, oh, I see how they figure it out how to get this house off a trailer. And it's on a foundation. Or whatever it is, whatever your needs are. And there, you know, right now, Ethan and I are teaching uh, nine students. And every single one of them have very different circumstances. So different. And that is just a, just a slice of what's out there. So having the houses there, having different talks and panels, having a community vision stage, which is thinking on a br- the people that are thinking on a broader, like how do all these houses fit together? How do they fit together with common public spaces? How do we build up our public spaces? Maybe size down our housing so that we can afford it and it's sustainable into our old age. Lots of bigger thinking that way, kind of systems thinking. And then on the design build stage, you can come in and you can really skill up yourself and get yourself ready to design or co-design if you want to bring in a designer, fine. But at least be really empowered as an active co-author of your design. Absolutely. And if you want to start building too, you're also going to skill up enough to know what you don't know. And then to go, you'll have resources to go, know where to go to get those skills to build your own house. And then the third stage is the story stage, which is really wonderful. You get to step into someone else's journey. You get to step into their houses. Um, and it's, it's a, just a beautiful way to, to learn through other people's stories. We should probably tell people when the fest is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this year, it's on Sunday, October 27th. And that's at, um, it'll be at the base of Sugarbush Ski Mountain. Okay, so that's the Sugarbush Resort in Waitsfield, Vermont. Technically Warren. Technically Warren, Vermont. But, They're yeah, right next door to one another. They are. And where can people learn more? So you can go to the website. It, you can go to Tiny House Fest. Dot com or tinyhousefestvermont.com. And they both go to the same place. They go to the same place. Nice. Yeah. Well, I want to circle back actually to, to your tiny house and your lifestyle. Hearing you talk about the fest brought up some more questions for me, which was just, you enjoy living there. Is it working financially, socially? Like, is it, is it working to meet the needs that you identified? when you said, hey, why don't we 
save some money by living in a tiny house in our in our own backyard. Yeah, I think it is. We've definitely dropped our own personal utilities. We still have a house that we rent that has higher utilities. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we're we're able to take the money that we get in rent and reinvest into the old house and make that more sustainable. So overall, yes, we are saving money and we have money to reinvest into an old house rather than tearing it down to maybe gradually improve it. Nice. So then it sounds like it it is working out. Yeah. And then we get great. We have three different families or individuals. We're a family, and but there's a single person that's in, in one of the apartments. There's, it was already an apartment that was attached to the house. And then there's the house apartment. Um, and that's had another family in it. So we do. We have, we're populating our little half acre. Nice. You have a, a little mini tiny house community. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about something that's in your bio. Um, your master's certificate in creative placemaking. Hmm. What is creative placemaking? So uh, creative placemaking is, it, it, it's really kind of a title that was given by um, the last director of the National Endowment for the Arts. And it's, it's a title to, it's a, to describe an approach to community development, arts engagement, and urban planning or local planning of sorts. So it crosses over all three of those major fields. And it it really is describing things that people have already been doing in a way that was so was so exciting for me because I was like, I, I've I've been working as an experiential um educator for the last 30 years. And wanting to take that work that I do in the schools and in smaller communities, traveled in a lot, like around the world teaching, and bring them to whole municipalities so that it isn't a either self-selected or, um, or concentrated, already related group. But how do we bring disparate communities together within a municipality and really help them connect in an experiential way? So that, when I heard about creative placemaking, I was like, ah, that's what I'm doing. And also studying architecture, I really realized that I was probably more drawn to planning than I was to architecture. I was much more interested in the spaces between, the interstitial spaces between us than like the monolithic structure. So, um, So I went and I studied that and it, it, gave validity to a lot of the ideas I had been thinking about and ideas I had put into action, but then it also gave me other skills um, around working with communities on the level of like real community development, which is, can be a very sticky and juicy topic in communities. So, but I tend to bring fun into it so that I don't ever hold meetings. I only hold events and we get people to events and then we get their ideas, their voices are heard, and then we create of that, create something out of that. So a lot of creative placemaking is about what is emergent in a community. How do we reflect um, the actual demographic of the community today? Not, not just what happened before. We want to honor history. And when we say history, 
this goes back to the indigenous people that lived on this land, that we make sure that our history is deep. It goes back to geological history so that we really are holding the whole history, but also really acknowledging the people that live here right here and now. And then what are the needs? What are the places that we can cultivate, whether they are permanent or temporal spaces, where we can come together that can be utilized in a multitude of ways? So sometimes creative placemaking might be building a park. It might be creating a parklet where you're pulling, um, you're using parking spaces as places of connection where people can have their lunch or they can play games. Um, it could also be creating a festival. So the Tiny House Festival was very much a creative placemaking initiative. How do we engage the public in multitude of ways? How do we bring in local partnerships? We have so many great organizations doing wonderful things in all the communities here in Vermont and around the country. How do we help those organizations meet their mission individually, as individual organizations, but collectively do one project? So it's kind of taking an eagle view and really considering all of the stakeholders and helping a community kind of buoy themselves with places and events and identity. Well, I can see you doing this both on your own little one acre property too, and also with the tiny house fest. So well done. Thank you. Do you have any favorite books or resources about design or even about tiny houses that helped you along the way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. I've consulted a lot. The one that's coming to mind right now, which I, I love, it's kind of been my go-to because it, it's really about how do you capture that, that one central idea for your design is Rock the Shack. You know that book? I don't know that book. It's a, it's a really beautiful book and they're generally small spaces and they have just like, there's a powerful message coming through each of those designs. And I think that really helps uh, rather than starting, you know, you have to start with your program and all the things you want in there, but what's the overall like real statement you want to make? Is it an interior space? Is it cozy? Is it projecting out? Whatever it is. So it's got some clever ideas and there's some um, spaces in there that could be built very affordably. And there's some that are on the other end of the spectrum. Right. Yeah. $200,000 cabins. Yeah, definitely. End up. (laughs) But that's what they publish. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Oh, and then also, oh, before that, Rural Studio. Yeah. Anything, any book by Rural Studio about Samuel Mockby, they have been working for decades down in the South at Auburn. And they have been focused on the $20,000 house. And last year at the festival, we brought somebody up from Rural Studio to talk about that initiative. So they have been really influential for me. That's awesome. Did they, did, do you think that, that that Rural Studio influenced your own tiny house design? Um, probably in materials, yes. I, and, you know, Probably some of their their spaces also are they're modern and they are uh, they use a lot of plywood, so yeah. you know very straight, uh, 
easy to access material. Yeah. That is relatively inexpensive depending on what grade mm-hmm. you use. So I have a lot of plywood in my house. Yeah. Well, Erin Miley O'Keefe, this has been so fun and I feel like we could keep talking for hours, but we actually have a class to teach soon. We do. It's our last day. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks, Ethan. It's been a joy to spend the last 12 days with you. And this has been a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks for what you do. I highly recommend checking out the photos of Aaron's paper boat tiny house at thetinyhouse.net slash 071. There you'll find the show notes from today's episode, including links to the resources that Aaron mentioned, and lots of great photos. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 071. Thank you so much to Aaron Miley O'Keefe for being a guest on our show, and thank you so much to our sponsor, Jamaica Cottage Shop. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.